The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Um, go ahead and turn to Jonah, the book of Jonah. It's chapter, we're going to be in chapter 4 today. Jonah is a, a small book, a, a minor prophet, so if you were to one, you can look in your table of contents and they'll tell you exactly what page um, we're on. And actually, if you, um, if you grab one of the Bibles from here, it's on page 452. Um, but if you open your Bible in the middle and get to the Psalms and Proverbs, just keep going to the right. And uh, eventually, you know, you'll go past Ezekiel and a few others and you'll, you'll hit Jonah. If you hit Matthew, you've gone too far. Um, while you're turning there, did anybody see this week the video of the guy getting uh, eaten by the whale? Okay, that was crazy. Um, it, uh, ironic timing that it happened this week as I was preparing for this sermon. But um, a guy is just diving, he's, you know, he's uh, snorkeling, and it's on video. And this whale comes up, and he goes into the mouth of the whale. And thank God, the whale spit him out. Um, but uh, I was watching an interview of him, and uh, we, I was laughing because he said that his son's name is Jonah. The interviewer, the reporter said, you're probably the first guy to be swallowed by a whale since Jonah. And he said, ironically enough, that's my son's name, Jonah. So anyway, um, we're in Jonah chapter 4. And this particular passage is a culmination of what happens when earthly identities supersede our identity in Christ. Um, God's, and, and it also is a reflection of God's compassion for his people. When we rebel and run from him, God compassionately and mercifully pursues his people who are us and also others. One of the big themes of Jonah is this us versus them mentality. And we're gonna see that fleshed out here in chapter four. I know that I can so easily find myself um, elevating earthly identity um, as an ultimate loyalty before my first loyalty, which is Jesus Christ. I guess I'm going to ask you all for a raise of hands. How many people in here are Americans? Okay, most everybody. How many people in here are Texans? How many people are not Texans in here? See, us Texans are already judging y'all. That's how earthly loyalties work. But when we're consumed by our narrow earthly loyalties, we miss the riches of God's sovereign plan, and we risk missing God's grace altogether. So I'm going to say that again. When we are consumed by our narrow earthly identities and circumstances, we miss the riches of God's sovereign plan, and we risk missing God's grace altogether. So to be able to understand where we end up here in chapter four, let's run through really quick an overview of the book of Jonah, a story that a lot of us know from childhood. It's like probably the, the one story you remember from Sunday school. But there's a few interesting points here that you might not uh, remember from Sunday school class when you were eight. So Jonah is a prophet of God. This is during a successful time in um, Israel, a time when the kingdom was expanding, and Jonah was a prophet prophesying for this. And he was called by God 
Unbeknownst to him, he's called by God to go minister to the people of Nineveh. And Nineveh was a part of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians, um, and Nineveh was located um, in modern day, kind of, it's modern day Iraq, kind of near Baghdad. And the, the, the Ninevites and the Assyrians were, you know, the, the part of the people that they were made of were tormentors of the Jewish people. They were not just tormentors of the Jewish people, they were tormentors of really all the people that they successfully conquered. If you were to compare them to a modern day people, you know, somebody in the news that you would know, it would be like ISIS, but really ISIS on steroids. I mean, some of the stuff that in my research I was reading about the Assyrians was, um, was wild. I mean, they would, they would conquer a people, they would kill men, women, and children. They would put, they would cut the heads off of men and put them on stakes to be seen as trophies. Um, I heard one account where they would be, they would, in, in battles, um, their enemy would be dying and they'd go and they'd cut off his left hand, but they'd leave his right hand so they could mockingly shake his hand as he was dying. I mean, these were sick people. And these people did this to the, the Jews. They did this to Jonah's people. So rightly so, Jonah, when he hears from God that he's to go to minister to them, one, he's probably pretty scared, but two, he probably thinks, I want no part of those people. Those people have not only tormented my people, but they did it in the most egregious ways. And so, God calls him to go preach, and we see what Jonah does. He runs. And if you imagine where Israel would have been, and then where Nineveh was, Jonah goes the other direction towards Tarshish, which we believe to be in modern-day Spain. So it would be like God telling you to leave here today and to go minister to somebody in Houston, and you saying, all right, God, and you head to Los Angeles. I mean, not only is it the opposite direction, but it is way further than where God is calling you to go. And so God steps in, in his providence, he's committed to his plan, we cannot escape his plan, and he has all means at his disposal. He has all of creation at his disposal to accomplish his plan, and he will use that. And so what does he do? He he um, creates this big storm in the sea. And fast forwarding a little bit through this storm, Jonah indicates to the crew that he's running from God. And this is a pagan crew, right? And Jonah is running from ministering to pagan people. And so um, eventually Jonah gets thrown overboard to save these pagans. And their response to that is worshiping God. They get converted through Jonah, despite what Jonah desires. And then we know the part where, um, you know, the, the sea calms. Because of Jonah's sacrifice, the pagans are spared. They're converted to the Lord. And what does God use to bring Jonah back onto track? A whale, a great fish. And Jonah ends up spending time in this great fish, the, this prison of a fish's belly for three days. And we'll pick up some parallels between him and Christ here shortly. We see that this great fish um, swallows him and in God's sovereignty, 
God uses that to soften Jonah's heart. And so in chapter two of Jonah, Jonah prays a prayer, a quite beautiful prayer while in the belly of the fish, and God spares him. And his last words of the prayer is, salvation belongs to the Lord. We're gonna circle back to that line, but salvation belongs to the Lord. And so God says for a second time, go and minister in Nineveh. And he goes and he preaches the worst sermon in history and there's mass repentance. Everyone is, uh, is repenting, including the king, from the king down all the way through, everyone, 120,000 plus people are repenting and turning from their ways. And so what does God do? God relents. He relents destruction on Nineveh. He relents destruction on um, Jonah's enemies. And so that's where we're going to pick up. We're going to be in all of chapter 4, but I'm going to start reading in verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he said, and he did not do it. So how does Jonah respond? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Was this not my word is basically what Jonah's saying? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. It's like, Jonah, dude, he's not going to destroy the city. He's already told you this. Look, at God is committed to his plan, but still Jonah's dug in. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that he might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is God's word. God is the sovereign king abounding in compassion, grace, and mercy. So reject your man-centered loyalties. So despite this beautiful prayer in chapter two, 
we see that Jonah's heart remains unchanged. After Nineveh repents, Jonah's in the same heart posture he was when he was running to Tarshish. He ends his prayer in chapter 2 saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. However, we see right here in the first four verses of chapter 4 that Jonah's heart prays, salvation belongs to me. Salvation belongs to me and my people. So Jonah is angry. He responds with anger and he responds with self-centeredness. In just two verses, he says, um, refers to himself, I, 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 my, my life, me. He refers to himself six times in just uh, two verses. He's so self-focused that he's blind to what God is doing, the amazing work that God is doing. And, and can't we relate to this, right? I mean, we see this kind of man-centered loyalty that results in anger and despair nearly every presidential election. When somebody gets voted in, one side or another resolves to move to Canada or Mexico, or I guess if they're in Hollywood and have the means, they actually do move to France. But it's like our hope terminates on this political power and influence. And so when that doesn't go our way, we want to just blow out. We don't have trust in the sovereign Lord that he is in control of it all. And how we talk, right? We talk about the other side with just hate and vitriol. We don't view them, we don't view others that are different from us and from a worldly sense, with compassion and grace and mercy that God views his people created in his image. So why is this? I believe that it's because our hearts are terminating not on the Lord and our trust in him, but that our hearts terminate on control and perceived power, and in this case of this illustration, political power. Do you demonize others for their different views? Or do you view them with compassion as hopeless sinners in need of a merciful Savior? We must reject our self-centered, our man-centered loyalties and begin to see those different from us with the same compassion and mercy that God views us through Jesus Christ. That is what Christians do. And so how do we do that? I think one practical step with that is as a church, as a church, we bring others into our homes that are different from us. That the diversity of this body starts with the diversity of our dinner table. And that's something that you can do. That's a step that we can make. And we don't have to have worldly similarities, right? We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what everyone needs. And for those that share that, that is the ultimate similarity. So we don't have to get into our tribalistic, stay fixed into our tribalistic mentalities like we see Jonah doing here. So then what do we do? So we're sinners in desperate need of a savior. My guess is this is hard for us. So then what do we do when we find ourselves like Jonah? 
angry and hardened towards others or just indifferent towards others that might be different from us. We turn to God that greets us with open arms and endless compassion and mercy and we repent of our sin. We repent of our hardened heart, our hardened heart and we rely on his grace. God is the sovereign king who is willing to save barbarians like the Assyrians in Nineveh. He's willing to save us too. He saved Jonah. He took Jonah through the belly of a whale and yet he doesn't smash Jonah immediately when he still doubts. Jonah's still doubting. God's like, dude, I've t- look, look at the path that we've walked together, and Jonah's still angry. You'd think, God, you know, if it's me with my children, like, I'm going to want to throw the gauntlet down, but that's not what the Lord does. He simply asks him a heart-provoking question, why are you angry? He treats Jonah with compassion and grace, and that's the same compassion and grace he will treat you and I when we go to him. So turn to God and he will st- extinguish the burning anger with a fire blanket of grace and mercy. Because God doesn't crush us in our man-centered rebellion, we can readily submit our plans to his plan. We can readily submit, you can readily submit your plans to his plans. So God isn't a dictator that if sensing a rebellion will crush his, uh, the, the obstacle in his way, that will crush his subjects, because he is in control, because he is the sovereign king, he doesn't need to do this. He doesn't fear our doubt. And in these verses, we see how God, in his sovereign control, uses nature for, to, to draw out and to bring the sin to bear in, in Jonah's heart. So in these verses, Jonah's plan, Nineveh's destruction, is juxtaposed with God's sovereignty, which is Nineveh's forbearance, and in some cases, Jonah's destruction. So Jonah kind of has it backwards here. And God uses his sovereignty to bring Jonah to his end. Although Jonah has run from God, he was stopped by a massive storm. He was imprisoned for days in the belly of the whale, then graciously restored. He still thinks he has a say in the plan. He still thinks that he can, that, that Nineveh might be destroyed. It says that after God has already said that I'm going to relent on these people, Jonah says, okay, well, I'm going to go and uh, set up a booth so I can sit here and wait for the destruction of this town. It's like a kid at a football game with his dad or something, and it's like his team is down by 40 in the fourth quarter, and the dad's like, let's just go home. This is over. And the kid's like, no, 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 we're going to come back. We're going to do this. And the dad patiently says, okay, and uses it as an opportunity to, to talk to his son and to work into his son's heart, to get to know him, for his son to know himself, even though the outcome's already been established. So God is compassionately caring for Jonah, He's using this as an opportunity to pursue Jonah and to, quite frankly, show Jonah that his heart has not changed despite the prayers that he has prayed. 
And so God, in his compassion, he uses a plant to grow and actually comforts him. And then he uses a worm to destroy this plant, to take away this gift that he has given. And then he brings in the elements of creation that are under his dominion, and he beats Jonah down with the wind and the sun. You know, there's some of y'all in here that might feel like Jonah right now, that feel beaten down by God's sovereign hand in your life by providing good things, by taking good things away. I know that as I was looking at this passage, I couldn't help but think about uh, this young lady in our church that um, I've had the privilege, me and my wife have had the privilege to counsel and disciple. And she has been run through the ringer with her husband. Her husband that um, she, she married because she thought he was the, um, he, she thought he was a believer and a leader in his faith and um, he turned out to be, um, quite frankly, an imposter. And he has damaged her and the family by sexual immorality and, uh, and just ongoing disobedience to the Lord and she has been willing to forgive and has forgiven him and there's hope and then he goes off and does it, you know, something again and she's just jerked around by her circumstances. And instead of despairing, instead of, well, she might have wanted to die at some parts, but instead of calling out to the Lord and asking for death, she called out to the Lord in true faith and repentance, and God used these circumstances to save his child. And she, like Jonah, thought that she was walking in obedience with the Lord, and yet he revealed to her through these circumstances that she had not put her faith and trust in him as ultimate savior. And now she has, and quite frankly, it's the most beautiful picture of God's grace. I mean, there's brokenness all over the place, but God as the Redeemer is on display, and he has propped her up as a trophy of his grace. And so, for us, we submit our plans to him. We can't see it. We don't have the end of the road. We don't have a picture of what the end's going to look like, but we move forward trusting in his promises that he is good, that he is compassionate, that he is merciful, that he saves both the egregiously immoral Assyrians and that he saves the self-righteous religious as well. We see in Romans 8, I'm just going to flip quickly to Romans 8, starting in 31. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All of these things God would use to draw us to him. And when our faith is put in him, nothing can separate us from that faith. 
So despite our circumstances, what does it look like then to submit to God's plan? What would it have looked like for Jonah to submit to the Lord? I would say that it's two things, really. It's that he would continue to love God for who he truly is, and that out of that love for God, he would love others. And so then you might ask, okay, practically, how are we gonna love others? I can say that I love others, but how do I love others? And I would say that it's by fulfilling your role in the Great Commission. It's by going to all nations, starting here in New Braunfels and beyond, people that are different than you, that look different than you, that are politically different than you, that are socially different than you, that are economically different than you, that are racially different than you. I mean, the list goes on. You see where I'm going with this. But when our identity is first in Christ, we are able to fulfill the great, our role in the Great Commission of making disciples. It's what Christians do. And so God is the sovereign king. We see that he is abounding in compassion, grace, and mercy. So we're to reject our earthly loyalties and we're to submit to God's providence. So then the question is, well, am I doing that? Am I right now submitting to God's providence? And so I would invite all of us now to consider our motives. Where do your heart affections ultimately terminate? In the final verses of this text and of the book, we see an exchange between God and God is drawing out of Jonah where his heart affections are ultimately terminating. We see that um, God removing the last comfort from Jonah, this plant, and it's like God is squeezing Jonah, like he's squeezing out the last bit of the toothpaste and we see what's really at the bottom of Jonah's heart. What's at the bottom? Well, really, suicidal despair. Jonah says, I have nothing left to live for. Your grace and your mercy to these people disgust me so that I want to die. But God doesn't back down. And as God always does, he gets in the last word. So they have a conversation over the plant and God reveals, he teases out why Jonah is really angry. He draws out of him what's truly at play, that it's not that Jonah's in love with a plant. Jonah's not a floral enthusiast. He's not broken over the plant's death itself. Jonah doesn't care about the plant. He only cares about what value the plant brings to him. Similarly, he doesn't care about the Assyrians' lives because they bring no value to his nation. They bring no value to the political power of Israel. He doesn't value the creator of these things. And we see this in Romans chapter one that Paul talks about we worship the creature over the creator. And this is just a, a real example of Jonah 
worshiping the creature rather than the creator and the anger and the brokenness that that causes. Eventually, the creature is going to give out on us. Our hope must be in the creator. So Jonah likes these created gifts, but he likes them untethered to the creator that grants the gifts. Because to like the gifts as the creator grants them, we must pursue the creator's ways. And Jonah has made it clear that he doesn't want to pursue his creator's ways. Jonah wants this valueless life, a plant preserved, while simultaneously advocating for the destruction of 120,000 human beings made in the image of God. 120,000 people that God says don't know their right hand from their left. And by that, God means that they were spiritually dead. And so when we think about you know, the irony of Jonah, who was a prophet for the Lord, who had, who had been doing work for God, who had been raised in the scriptures, who had been raised knowing Yahweh was Lord, he knew these things, and yet God's compassion, Yahweh's compassion and grace disgusted him. So was he a prophet for God? Yes. But was he spiritually dead? I would say, yes, he was. And we see in, in Matthew, and you can flip to Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Really, I'm going to start in 21, but in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, This is Jesus talking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so that's a sobering text. That's a, that's a sobering text, but more evidence that, yes, we can actually be doing God's work, but we cannot be submitted under Christ's lordship. So Jonah despised this grace that God so freely gives to his people which are all people created in him, his image that are in Christ. So we see here that, you know, the book ends with this kind of cliffhanger, if you will. You know, what, what becomes of Jonah? How does this end? One might think it's anticlimactic, but I would argue that, um, I would argue that. I, uh, you know, this is a literary masterpiece. It's something that we didn't, have time to go over, but um, the way that this book was put together is, is just remarkable. But what the author is doing by ending at this cliffhanger is like he's pushing us, the audience, the readers of this, you know, to the precipice. He's pushing us to the edge of our own self-reflection. He's pushing, pushing us to the edge of this cliff of which way do we go? 
It's like when I was a kid and, you know, we'd go to the, the neighborhood swimming pool and they had the big, you know, high dive. It's like, if you sit me up there with nobody else in line behind me, I'm either going to camp out for the next 15 minutes on top of the board or I'm going to turn around and walk back down before jumping because I don't have somebody behind me pushing me forward. But if I jump in with 20, you know, screaming kids in the line behind me and probably my brother behind me, I'm going to get pushed off the edge. I'm going to end up going in. And so this is kind of what the author is doing to us. He's pushing us to the edge. And so we'll circle back to Jonah, but first let's, let's look at our own hearts. Let's take some stock of our own motives in our lives. Where do my loyalties, where do your loyalties, hopes, and fears terminate? Does your love does your loyalty and hope terminate on your circumstances, on your political affiliation or um, party's power? Does it terminate on your nationality? Does it terminate on your local identity? You know, we all proudly raised our hands as Texans. Is that where our hope terminates? Does it terminate on our spouse or lack thereof, our future spouse? Does it terminate on our job or our business that we started or our lack of a job? Really, this is for you to self-reflect and to fill in that blank. Where might your hope be terminating on if not Jesus Christ and his lordship? So these are all good things, right? Like we're called to um, political action. We're called to um, we're called to um, to be proud, really, in where we come from. Like those are right and good. Like we come from great places. Like we come from a country that has religious freedom that allows us to meet so freely today. We we should be proud of that. But is that where it ultimate? Is that where it stops? Is that where it terminates? Or does it go all the way to the provider of those th good things through Jesus Christ? Because all of those things, if not taken all the way to Christ, will eventually lead to death. This is going to be a shocking way to put it, but all of those things become demonic and false gospels if that's where they're left. So we're not called to neglect those things. I want you to hear me with that. We're called to engage them, but we're not called to engage them as our ultimate hope. So then for us, how do we put these things in proper order? And I think there's a lot of you know, helpful ways that we can think about that, but the most foundational way is we put them in that proper order by a worship of Jesus Christ by a worship of the God that became man, that lived the perfect life that we could not live, that died the death that we deserved, that took on our sin, that spent three days in the tomb and then rose again to prove himself as Lord. When that is our hope, when we are worshipful of him for what he has done, then I think these places, these things fall into their rightful place. We see Jesus actually refer to himself when the Pharisees were asking for um, a sign. 
He says that the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. He likens himself to actually Jonah's story. And so in my study, um, Tim Keller actually helped um, shape some of these parallels between Jonah and Christ, between Jonah and Jesus. And so let me just share a couple of these with you. Uh, First, Jonah was tossed into the waves of the ocean while Jesus was tossed into the waves of our sin. Jonah was a sacrifice for the pagan sailors saved on that boat, while Jesus' sacrifice on the cross saved us from our assured destruction. Thirdly, Jonah went into the depths of the sea for three days, while Jesus went into the depths of the earth for three days dead. Jonah was revived from certain death in the whale to go and save Nineveh, a city of 120,000 people. While Jesus revived himself from actual death so that we all would be set free from our death and certain bondage. So then how do we, how, how do we, how are we set free? If Christ did that for us, how are we set free? And the answer is this. We're set free by receiving Christ's sacrifice as true and unmerited mercy, by repenting of our sins, and by following him as Lord. We remove our own crown and put on Christ's crown as Lord. We do this by faith, trusting in his unmerited mercy his work, his sacrifice. And what happens is we receive his grace and we receive his mercy and compassion and we follow his sovereign plan and we are no longer bound by the guilt and shame of our sins. We join our brothers and sisters in church community and we go with one another locked in arms fulfilling the great commission. We go into our neighborhoods and we share Christ with others. We go into our work, our places of work and we share Christ with others. This is what Christians do. And because we have been forgiven of much, we are willing to forgive one another. And so... I think a key element here as we self-reflect is that we're no longer bound by the guilt and shame of our sin. So if you would, the band, if y'all are welcome to come up now as I conclude this. So circling back to Jonah, you know, what, what happened with Jonah? And actually, I would just say, as we consider ourselves that we're no longer bound by the guilt and shame of our sin, we actually look to Jonah for this example. You might ask, what? How? I think Jonah's shown himself to be quite the opposite example. Yes, but see, nearly every scholar agrees that Jonah is the author of this book. And so what author, really in the history of this world, has ever documented their own absurdity their own immaturity, their own downright wickedness unless they had been redeemed by the God of the universe and are no longer defined by the shame of their sin. Only one that is by grace through faith been set free from his or her sin 
would go that full kimono in showing themselves for who they were. And so we can look to this as an example that when we're trusting in Christ for that forgiveness, we don't have to, we don't have to carry the guilt and shame. And as a matter of fact, we can open our mouths and speak, speak freely of what we were and what God did and now to what God is doing. So I just want to encourage those of you here that have tasted that unmerited grace, that are living in the storm of their circumstances right now, to look back and get up and blow the roof off of this place and worshiping the God that saves and the God that changes. And if that's not you, if you don't feel like you can stand up and open your mouth in worship of the God that frees us, he won't shame you. Like, did you see how he handled Jonah after all that he took him to and in Jonah's anger and in Jonah's rebellion? He doesn't shame him and stick his nose in the mess that he's made like we would like a potty training dog. He just asks him, he, oh, he, he asks him questions to reveal what's going on in Jonah's heart. And that's the same mercy that leads Jonah to come back and repent and own his sin. And so for you, the Lord won't do that to you. He won't stick your nose in it. He won't stick your nose in your failure and in your shame. He's going to pick you up. The Lord receives us with infinite compassion. So let's get up and worship him for who he is and sing this last song for his glory.